and open them to Haggai chapter 2. Yes, Haggai, not Malachi. Haggai chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14. I will be finishing Malachi uh, when I preach in January. But on Wednesday nights, I had been preaching through Haggai. And so uh, when I'm done with Malachi, I'll finish up in Haggai. But this morning, I wanted to, uh, I needed a little relief from a busy past couple weeks. And so this was a, a book that I preached through a couple years ago. And so I'm re-preaching through it, or was re-preaching through it on Wednesday nights. And um, once I finish uh, Malachi in January, then I'll finish up Haggai, and then I will start a, a new book. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Once you find your place, please stand to your feet as we read God's word together. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, or oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration, and so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. Church, let us ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Father in heaven, as we break open your word, may we know of Christ, the bread of life. May we not live on the sustenance of bread only, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, this is true life, your word. For it tells us who you are. It tells us of holiness and sin. It tells us of Christ, our Redeemer. And so I pray this morning that our delight would be in you, that we'd be confronted with your word and understand where it is that we need to adjust our thinking and our living, that we would be conformed to your image. Lord, your word is there not just to bring us salvation, but to bring us sanctification, that we might be further transformed to look like our amazing Savior. God bless us now. May we not leave here unless we leave here changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please be seated. The sermon is titled, When God Exposes the Sinner. When God Exposes the Sinner. My wife and my daughter love bread more than me. I like bread too, just not to the same degree that they like it. But there's one thing that bothers me about bread, and you're probably thinking, the heels because you don't like feet, Pastor, and you would be absolutely right, okay? Don't like the heels of bread, but that wasn't the part of the bread I was talking about. So now there are two things that bother me about bread, the heels and that piece of bread that you get that has a massive hole in it. Has anyone ever got that piece of bread, all right? If, if you've ever tried spreading uh, mustard or mayo on that hole, you'll know why I hate those pieces, okay? Just a messy sandwich at that point. Now, those holes aren't caused by mice, which you may have thought, okay? They are caused by air bubbles. And actually, if you look at a piece of bread, you'll see that there's a lot of tiny air bubbles in the bread that were baked into it. And the slices with the large holes are just slices with massive air bubbles. Now, how to get there? Well, this is what happens, okay? When, uh, when you put yeast inside flour and, uh, and water, the yeast begins to reproduce, and it begins to work its way through the dough. There's enzymes in the yeast, in the, in, in the flour, they start to break down the starch in the batch, okay? The broken down starches, they become simple sugars, 
And the yeast begins to eat these things, these simple sugars, and this causes a chemical reaction where uh, ethyl alcohol and carbon dioxide are released into the dough. Within the dough, there's already thousands and thousands of tiny air pockets mixing together with everything they're in there. But the carbon dioxide begins to fill these air pockets and then it inflates them like a balloon. Okay? Most of the bubbles stay relatively small, which is what you see when you look at when you see bread. But some of them end up getting really big because the yeast grows too fast. This is how air bubbles are formed. I don't expect you to remember all that because I won't either, okay? But that just kind of lets you know where these big air pockets come from, these big holes in bread. Now, the crazy thing about yeast is that it reproduces asexually through what is called budding. The yeast cells produce a little growth or a bud, and that cell begins to grow. Eventually, its growth gets big enough and it breaks off, and it becomes its own cell, which is a clone of the previous cells. So, you can take a batch of flour and, and water with no yeast. You can have a simple dough. And you can take another piece of foreign dough with yeast in it, just a tiny piece, and place it into the clean dough. And eventually... That yeast, that dough will be overcome with yeast, and it rises and rises and rises, okay? So it formerly didn't, but you put a little bit in, and it spreads through the whole thing. Yeast, in essence, is a fungus, and it invades, invades and infects whatever lump of flour and water you put into it. Yeast will keep getting passed on over and over again if you bring it into contact with fresh batches of flour and water, fresh batches of dough, right? But what you can't do is you can't try to purge a lump of dough from uh, yeast. You can't purge yeast from it no matter how hard you try. It will simply be a matter of time before yeast works its way through the entire lump no matter how pure it is. And you can add more flour and you can add more water and add more dough and that won't help. Eventually, the yeast will overcome that fresh dough as well. And of course, yeast cells can be killed if you add a lot of hot water. But assuming that conditions are right, baking conditions are right, the yeast will continue to spread and grow and work its way through future batches as well. Now, if you've read scripture for any length of time, you may be familiar with the notion of how the Jews had a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Yeastless Bread. Leaven is a substance that causes dough to rise, yeast in most cases. Now, you remember, uh, you may remember that in Scripture, Jesus warned his followers to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That is their false teaching, okay? In 1 Corinthians, you may recall a matter in which there was a group of, of, uh, uh, of sinners, all right, that were in the church, and the Apostle Paul told the church to cleanse that leaven, cleanse that yeast from among you. Uh, this unleavened group of people didn't want to be contaminated by those that were sinning without restraint. And so Paul says to remove them. All of these people understood the basic principle that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In the Old and New Testament, those who knew Scripture understood that leaven is a picture of sin and just how contagious sin is. Jesus knew how contagious and dangerous the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, so he warned against their leaven. The Apostle, Poo, uh, Apostle Paul, not, not what I just said, okay? The Apostle Paul knew that unchecked and unrepentant sin in the church would infect the entire body. And the prophet Haggai was given a similar message from God for priests that were serving the remnant of Judah. The message was simple. The message is what we're going to see today in Scripture. That holiness is not contagious. Sin is. Holiness is not contagious. Sin is. That apart from God, apart from God, all that we do is sinful in His eyes. And it affects everything. It affects and infects everything. Today's message might sound very negative, but it's actually set in the larger context that is meant to encourage the people of Judah. 
So what we're reading today comes before a message of grace and restoration. It's meant to help them. This message is helping to see why they've been in the situation they've been in. Okay, so it's going to feel like a condemnation, but it's actually not. It's it's a reality check uh, from God. And so today's passage is a call for Judah to reflect on why God had been disciplining them, why he had been disciplining them. The follow-up passage after this is about how God will now bless them because of their repentance and their renewed covenant living, their renewed faith in him. But as a standalone passage, out of context, this passage can sound very hopeless, but it's not meant to be, okay? So let me help you get up to speed on today's passage. Haggai. First of all, this is a post-exilic book of the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, it's post being banned from one's homeland. If you are exiled, you are kicked out of your homeland and forbidden. Israel, Judah, had been kicked out of their land, and they were enslaved to the Babylonians for 70 years. So this is after that period when they are now allowed to come back home. So it's post-exile, after the exile, post-Babylon, after Babylon, post-captivity. The 70 years of captivity under the Babylonians is over. The 70 years of punishment from God is done. Haggai is a prophet of God. God has given him a message to the leaders of Judah and to Judah itself. We are 18 years now later after that 70-year period when they've been allowed to return home. Okay, So 18 years after the exile. I'm sorry, not after the exile, but after the return. Okay, the deportation back to their hometown. Under Persian rule, Darius is the, the king of Persia at this time, but under their rule, they are allowed to return to Jerusalem, Israel is. They can rebuild the temple, and they can resume their life as God's covenant people. So the Jews have been slowly returning to their homeland in three different phases. And the book of Haggai takes place in the first phase around 520 B.C., and if you forget the date, that's okay. But it's around 520 B.C. God's message through Haggai so far has been very simple. Let me bring you up to speed on that. God has initially, in the first chapter of Haggai, because it's only two chapters long, he's expressed displeasure with them because they have stopped building the temple of God now for 16 years. For the past 16 years... For two, a couple years, they were rebuilding the temple. And for the past 16 years, they forgot about it, stopped it because of discouragement, quit it. And they've been focusing on building their own lives, living the American dream, so to speak. Okay? Building up their own life. And so God has expressed displeasure. Because they have, a failed, uh, they have failed to obey God, he has caused them to fail economically by causing drought and plagues to come to their crops. So they're under discipline. God invites them to examine their ways and to discern why this is happening to them. He tells them, if you would just resume construction of my house, he says, my temple, I would bless you. For too long, they had been consumed with building their own homes and their paneled houses rather than being consumed with building the temple, this project, which was an amazing building with an amazing ritual system that all showed God's holiness. It showed their sinfulness and how they could be right with God. And ultimately, this pointed to Christ, who shows us God's holiness, our sinfulness, and how we can be right with God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So this was all meant to help them see how we can be united and, and reunited with God. Okay, So God's message penetrated their heart. He rebukes them for tending to their own homes while his house is in disarray. Okay, So, uh, so that's what happens. That message penetrates their heart and their minds. And within a few weeks, they begin reconstructing the temple. Again, discouragement begins to set in once again. Temptation to quit working is coming on strong once again. They're losing heart. They're getting faint of heart. Financially, at this time, Judah is basically coming out of God's discipline, so funds are kind of low. Even though things are starting to turn around, they, have, they don't have a lot of savings, so to speak, coming out of the recession. On top of all that, they're even in a busy month, a busy month for the Jewish calendar that requires a lot of sacrifices, a lot of giving financially, which meant that the little resources they had, a lot of it's going to the festive month that they are in. 
So things are limited in resources, and they have to rebuild the temple with resources that they don't have a lot of. So discouragement set in. On top of that, memories about the first temple invade their minds. It's grander size. It's bigger uh, square footage, if you will. And it discouraged them to see the foundation of the new temple, which was a lot smaller. And so in their minds, they sensed that this would have less glory, less oomph, all right? less uh, spectacularness when it came to visual observation. They were concerned with magnificence when they should have been concerned with significance. There's a difference. You can be big and insignificant. You can still be small and have significance. And God's message to Judah in chapter 2 was for them to be strong and to work and to swing those hammers and to push those brooms and to take those saws and cut down trees and, and, take, and uh, make planks of wood and rebuild the temple. Okay, So that's what his message was to them, to work and to not be afraid because he was with them as he promised he would be. The Lord of armies would be with his people as they worked. Now, as we come to today's passage, we see that God is really asking them to consider what life was like before they resumed construction of the temple. That's really what this is getting at. What were things like before when you were living in complacency and not fulfilling my kingdom purposes? Verses 10 through 19 are actually a bigger section. We're only looking at the first part of this today, uh, verses 10 through 14. Now, the first thing we see as we look at verse 10 is that God, uh, when God exposes the sinner, when God exposes the sinner, he teaches them about holiness. When God exposes the sinner, he teaches them about holiness. Look at verse 10, okay? It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Verse 11, this is what the Lord of armies says, ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. So, exactly three months, exactly three months have passed since construction has resumed on the temple. That's where we are, okay? God brings now another word to Haggai, and it says, this is what the Lord of armies says to the priests, to the remnant of Judah. To the priests, to the remnant of Judah. Now, before we get to what the Lord actually says, I want to address the title that's given to us in the text. The title of God here is the Lord of armies. It was used five times in the span of six verses in Haggai 2, chapter 4 through 9, just prior to the scripture that we're reading today. The Lord of armies, that title is used five times. It's a very different title than we're used to in regards to the Lord. Some of your Bible translations will say Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Okay. In today's language, we think of a host or a hostess and someone who has, uh, or maybe someone who's having a get-together at their house, they're the host of the party, they greet you when you walk in the door at Outback Steakhouse, okay? Sometimes we think of a host as that. And some of you are thinking, oh, I know what a hostess is, that's a Twinkie, all right? That, that, that's not what we mean, don't be, he's not the Lord of Twinkies, okay? Uh, that's not what scripture is getting at. So we don't want to take our modern-day understanding of the word host and then transform it back into scripture, just so you know, that's a good interpretive rule. Never take your meaning of a, a word and force it onto Scripture. That's what we called eisegesis. All right? That's the fancy word for it. What you want to do is take the meaning of Scripture and extract it out, which is what we do here at our church. We call that exegesis. Okay? So extracting meaning so that the meaning of what God says is the meaning of what you hear, not my thoughts or what you're going to hear. We want you to hear what God has to say. Okay? So uh, the context reveals that this word, Lord of Armies. It's a military term, actually, okay? It stands for that which goes out, that which goes out, as in for warfare or an organized army, the Lord of Hosts. It is a militant term. It can also mean Lord of the Sun, Lord of the Moon, Lord of the Stars, the host, the starry hosts, okay? But in the context, the term Lord of Armies, listen to this, it's carrying the idea of God being a divine warrior. It is the idea of God being a divine warrior, okay? That's the term that theologically we want to understand. It describes that a God, when he is about to fight on behalf of others, 
when he is about to conquer their enemies. In Haggai, the word is being used to strengthen the faint-hearted people who want to quit building the temple. And so he's using this term, Lord of armies, to remind them that God is the one who fights on their behalf, that he is the divine warrior behind them telling them, get up and go to battle, so to speak. Get up and work. Get up and do what I've told you to do. I am the Lord of armies. I am a divine warrior. And so the divine warrior, he poses these two questions to the priest of Judah. Two questions, okay? The divine warrior who overcomes their enemies, who defeats Satan's plot, he poses two questions to the priest of Judah. And he asks the priest to make a ruling, to make a ruling. And the way he poses the question takes them specifically to the word of God. In other words, God is saying to them this. He says, priests, I want you to take my law, I want you to take my word, and I want you to give me an answer to the question that I'm about to ask. You make a ruling because that's in part what priests were supposed to do, to take situations that people were going through, to take God's law and apply the text, okay? They weren't to be uh, applying their own meaning or favoring people and being arbitrary like that. They were to take the word of God. And in Deuteronomy 17, okay, you're, you're welcome to turn there, Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 through 13, Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. So when God is asking them, take, give me a ruling, this particular passage would have come up in their mind. Okay? Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. This is God talking to the people. He says, if a case is too difficult for you, Concerning bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, cases disputed at your city gates, then go up to the place the Lord your God chooses. You are to go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who presides at that time. Ask, and they will give you a verdict in a case. You must abide by the verdict they give you at the place the Lord chooses. Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction they give you and the verdict they announce to you. Do not turn to the right or to the left for the decision they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen either to the priest who stands there serving the Lord, your God, or to the judge, must die. You must purge the evil person from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it, be afraid, and no longer behave arrogantly. And so here we, real quick, got this notion of where hard cases are brought to the priest and to the judge presiding at the time. Listen to what they say. Do it. Don't deviate from it all. If you do, that person is to be cut off and purged so that everyone will be afraid and not live sinfully. In other words, that person who disregards the ruling, they need to be purged because they're like leaven. And we don't want everyone else living rebellious, sinful lives from God's word. Okay, So this is what the priests are hearing from God. Give me a verdict. Oh, we need to give a verdict about what God is the people aren't bringing something to us. God is bringing something to us. We have to make a verdict to make sure that things are right, okay? So the first, uh, first understand that the priests were obligated, obligated as they stood before God and the people, before God and the people, uh, they were obligated to only enforce what God had said, okay? Their interpretation and application of God's word was supposed to be spot on. They couldn't just render any verdict or decision that they wanted, they were not the law givers. They were the law explainers and the law appliers. Does that make sense? They, they were not the law givers. God was. They couldn't just apply the text willy-nilly and force people to do things that God's word didn't require of them. And really, it's the same with pastors and elders and teachers of God's word. Whether you teach a small group, whether you teach from the pulpit, whether you aim to teach online through blogs, articles, or small groups, or posts, you can't impose on people things that are not in God's word, no matter how well-intentioned you are. It's a serious error. Listen to this. It is a serious error to require of people to do things that God has not told them in his word. It's just as serious as telling people to stop doing things that God has required of them in his word. Do this, but it's not in God's word. You got to do it. Don't do this, but God says do it. Don't do it. Both of those are serious errors, okay? To require people to do things not commanded in his word is to say that God has not gone far enough in his holiness requirements. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. 
To require people to do things not commanded in his word is to say that God has not gone far enough in his holiness requirements. In other words, you think you're more holy than God, and so you got more rules to pile up on people. How arrogant is that? How prideful is that? That was one of the big errors of the fundamentalist movement that I grew up in. This is a movement that came about the early part of last century. Girls, you can't wear, you can't wear pants. That's the kind of church in school that I went to, Bible college, believe it or not. Okay, Guys, you can't have long hair. You can't have drums in church. You can't listen to secular music. You can't go to movies. You can't go on and on. And the list would just go on and on and on. All these rules, as if God's law wasn't enough. This doesn't mean discernment shouldn't be used in these things. But to require, require people to do things not listed in God's word is to unknowingly elevate yourself above God. It says that you have a holier standard than God, and that's arrogant, and that's really blasphemous. Now, this rendering of the word of God, this rendering of the verdict, I should say, this decision, the meaning of God's word, was something that the priests were used to. At certain times, they would make rulings or determinations as they stood before the Lord God and between the people of Israel. But in Haggai, God is not asking them to render a verdict. He's not asking for that, as if he doesn't know the answer to the word. He's asking them to make a decision, a ruling, a determination, but but not in the case, uh, really the point is that he's trying to get them to examine themselves. And it's not as if God doesn't know, so he needs the wisdom of the priests. He's asking the question again, so that Judah will recognize why they had been under God's discipline with the drought and the failed crops and the poor economy. So in order to understand the overall emphasis of chapter 2, you have to see that. Okay? That's what God is getting at. He's trying to get them to self-reflect. It looks like it, but God is not really rebuking them right now. He's asking them to consider why horrible things had previously come upon them. And he does this by posing the two questions. The first question is, has to do with holiness. He says, if a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, or oil, or any other food, does it become holy? And the priest answered what? They said, no. Okay? Now, as I mentioned, this question that God asks, it takes us to another passage of Scripture, all right, that God is asking them to interpret and apply. So I want you to look at Leviticus 7. Leviticus 7, 19 through 21. Now, God's bringing out his word to these people. He's desiring to teach them something about holiness, namely that holiness is not contagious. That's what we want to look at as we see in Leviticus 7, 19 through 21. So he asked them this question about meat. If this consecrated meat touches other food, does that food become consecrated and holy? No. Leviticus 7, 19 through 20 says this. Meat that touches anything unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned. That is consecrated meat, right? Meat dedicated to the Lord that touches anything unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned. Everyone who is clean may eat any other meat. Meaning if you're consecrated, you're clean, you may eat any other meat. But the one who eats meat... From the Lord's fellowship sacrifice, while he is unclean, that person must be cut off from his people. If someone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or an unclean, abhorrent creature, and eats meat from the Lord's fellowship sacrifice, that person is to be cut off from his people. So, in this particular passage in Leviticus, and I understand this may be foreign to some of you, um, we don't read a lot of Leviticus these days, but it is very essential in leading us to Christ. But in this particular passage, God was giving instructions for the fellowship sacrifice, a particular kind of sacrifice. And he gives rules in these verses that we just read about who can eat the sacrifice, when it can be eaten, versus when it is supposed to be burned up and not eaten. And so there's very specific instructions. In, in this scripture, in verse 19, we read that consecrated meat, meat that has been offered up to God and cleansed and, and holy, consecrated, 
If it touches anything unclean, it can't be eaten. Okay? The meat was sacrificed and offered up to God. If it's consecrated unto God, it's holy, separated from all unclean things, and it can only be handled and consumed in the way that God prescribed. It was holy meat. But notice when this holy meat touches something unclean or anything common or anything not consecrated, it has to be burned. And we see that it cannot be eaten. It is now unholy because the unholy contaminated the holy. Notice also in verse 19 of this passage that everyone who has been purified, who was consecrated unto the Lord and cleaned, they're allowed to eat any meat that is still consecrated. Holy can interact with holy. But again, they cannot interact with consecrated meat that came into contact with something filthy. Okay, So they're consecrated. This holy meat touches something impure. Now they cannot have that either. Okay, When you look at verse 20, all right, you see that if you are ceremonially clean or consecrated or holy for whatever reason, all right, or if you are ceremonially unclean, sorry, unclean for any reason whatsoever, all right, so you're filthy, and you eat consecrated meat, holy meat dedicated to the Lord, to the fellowship sacrifice. You do that, you're to be cut off from everyone. What you did was wrong because only consecrated people can eat consecrated meat. So if you're unconsecrated, unholy, defiled, and you come into contact with that which is holy, you did wrong, you're cut off. Okay, You go to jail. Some of you may know <laughs> that video clip where someone is jokingly making fun of uh, Leviticus. You undercook the fish, you go to jail. You overcook the chicken, you go to jail, right? And it's just everything is go to jail, go to jail. But that's what happens. You're unconsecrated, eating holy things, you're cut off. In essence, you're in trouble. In both cases, meat touching unclean things, okay? Meat, holy meat touching unclean things did not render the unclean thing holy. Are you with me? Clean meat touching unholy meat did not make the unholy meat holy. An unholy person, dirty person, eating consecrated meat did not make the dirty person holy. In other words, holiness is not contagious. It is not transmitted. While contamination or being rendered unholy is in view here, that is the part that most people focus on, becoming impure before God. But the flip side of this is also addressed in this text, namely, that which is holy and pure does not become holy, I'm sorry, uh, that which is unholy, all these words are getting jumbled in my head, that which is unholy does not become holy by coming into contact with the holy, okay? Holiness only comes about in the manner that God prescribes. It is always through cleansing and purification and sacrifice. About five years ago, let me give you an illustration to help you see what I'm getting at. About five years ago, I had a conversation with a coworker who I initially thought was a Christian. She had previously talked about growing up in the church, singing with the church praise team, and growing up under a father who was a pastor and still is. We hadn't talked in a while, and eventually we began having another conversation, and we started discussing the notion of sin and walking with God. And I told her that no sin is worth wrecking your intimacy with God. No sin is worth wrecking your intimacy with God. And her reply was, the whole God thing really doesn't bother me anymore. She was basically admitting that I used to believe this stuff, but I don't anymore. And so I dug further, and I discovered that she was not a believer at all. In fact, she was a doubter. I asked her, do your parents know about your unbelief? And she said that she had told them she was an apostate. I remember being very concerned for this person because they were so far from God, even though they had come into contact with Christian songs, Christian church, Christian parents, Christian friends. None of that, none of these things that were set apart for God had the capacity to make her a Christian. An unholy person coming into contact with holy things does not render that person holy. If you are unsaved, not in God's family, coming into contact with godly things does not make you a Christian. 
Do you hear that? Holiness is not transmitted that way. Being set apart for God is not transmitted that way. And that is a simple truth we must all learn. You don't get holy by touching holy things. In the Old Testament, ceremonial holiness came about by ceremonial washings, ceremonial purification, ceremonial sacrifices. It was God's prescribed manner that rendered someone holy. And they had to do it from a right heart. Holiness wasn't transferred by mere contact and the things that had been cleansed. And the same is true in the New Testament. You don't become clean by coming to church meetings, do you? You can go to church all your life. It doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become clean by singing worship songs. You don't become clean before God by having Christian parents or because your dad is a pastor or because your mom taught children's class or because you went to youth group. You become clean before God when you are washed, when a sacrifice is made on your behalf. And that washing comes by the blood of Christ and that sacrifice comes by Christ himself. Colossians chapter 1 says this in verse 21 and verse 22. It says, once you and I were alienated and hostile in our minds expressed in our evil actions. We were hostile towards God, had hostile minds, and it showed itself in evil actions. But now you have been reconciled, or he has reconciled you, reconciled, made things right between you and him by his physical body through his death to present you holy, that is consecrated, set apart, undefiled, through his body, through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So the way that you are purified before God and set apart for him is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the only means. You can come into contact, you can listen to all the Christian radio stations, listen to all the Christian podcasts, all that stuff. None of that will make you holy. Only Jesus Christ can make you holy. You must come into contact with him. Okay? And your confession of your sin acknowledges that he died for your sin and as it was placed upon him. And your acknowledgement that he is the Savior, that his blood was shed and he died and he rose again through faith in him, you receive his righteousness. His holy living and holy deeds are transferred to you so that God will declare you righteous. But it is not coming into other things that are consecrated unto God. It is coming into God, contact with God himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is God's prescribed means, and that is how the people in Israel were cleansed. Not by just coming into contact with holy things, but by going through the ritualistic process that God called them to do. Then they would be pronounced ceremonially clean, but only God can make them really clean through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So we see that when God confronts a sinner... He teaches them about holiness. But we also see that when God uh, confronts a sinner or exposes a sinner, he teaches them about sin. Look at verse 13 in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai asked, If someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? If someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these consecrated things set apart for God, Does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Why? Because the person who is consecrated, touching a corpse, now has become undefiled. There were a couple of cleansings that you had to go through. And this is one of the hardest things to be cleansed from, touching a corpse. I believe it took seven days and a couple different washings before you could be pronounced ceremonially clean. So you're dirty and you touch something that's unholy because you touch the corpse and you touch something that's holy, I'm sorry, that holy thing now is rendered defiled, unholy, unconsecrated. And so this scripture should not take a whole lot of time to touch on and explain because we've been kind of hitting on it in verses 10 through 12. But the question is different and it's meant to teach the priest something about the nature of Judah and what has happened to them. If someone who's defiled, someone who's unclean, someone who's ceremonial and holy, if they come into contact with bread, stew, wine, does that food item become unholy or defiled? And the answer is yes, it becomes defiled. And so in Leviticus, we read about uh, ceremonial consecrated meat. We touch on all that. It has to be burned. Um, and so now these things are defiled and they're not to be partaken of by any holy person. Okay, So if someone then who is unclean, touches bread, wine, stew, or oil, those things are now 
unclean as well. So the, the point that the prophet is trying to make and, and uh, God is trying to make in bringing this question to them is he's wanting them to see that sin taints everything it touches. Sin taints, taints everything that it touches. It is infectious. While holiness is not transmitted by touch, sin is. It's like the yeast that I spoke of earlier. And that's why we must be cleansed by Jesus and washed by his blood. Why we must be made holy before God. As God's children, we must be careful not to let sin infect our community because it's like yeast. It can overtake and contaminate everything. Man, God is a jerk, is he not, for removing people and cutting them off from the rest of the community for their uncleanliness? Is God a jerk? Some people would say that's unloving. This is the equivalent of church discipline in the Old Testament. Do you see that? Because the Lord cared about the community of Israel and didn't want them becoming uh, infected by sin and contamination. He had to require of them that they purge the evil person from among them. And it's true in the church too. God, God loves you, brothers and sisters. And if there's an unruly one here that wants to just go crazy, well, then the New Testament gives us certain uh, rules and guidelines to live by to help maintain holiness in the church. Okay, You can't let sin run rampant and unchecked. In Matthew chapter 16, if you remember, Jesus, and I mentioned this earlier, Jesus told his disciples to watch out for the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they begin to talk about physical bread. And these guys bake? <laughs> right? That's kind of how the conversation's going. And Jesus chided them a little bit. And, he, and then they realized that Jesus wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about their teaching. Jesus was trying to tell them that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees was not good. Beware of it. It is infectious. It is destructive. It will overtake and it will ruin people. It's like yeast or leaven. It will spread like wildfire and it's hard to get out. It contaminates everything. And that is why as a church, we must be ferociously guarded against false teaching. We, we don't want it to creep in. And so that's why we want to explain the word of God in its purity for what it means. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man and a woman who were committing gross sin, and the church was being tolerant of it. Paul instructs the church to cut out the yeast from amidst them, from amongst them. Cut out the yeast, and he uses that language. His reminder is this, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It only takes a little bit to, to ruin it all. In other words, don't you know that it only takes a little unrestrained and unchecked sin to spread to others like yeast? Sin contaminates. And so Paul's warning for the church was to remove this people through church discipline. Now, when it comes to questions, these questions that God asked the priests, they rightly discern, the priests in Haggai, they rightly discern from God's word that that which is defiled contaminates that which it touches. So sin infects. So when God confronts the sinner, we saw, first of all, that he teaches them about holiness. It's not contagious. But when God confronts and exposes the sinner, he also teaches them about the nature of sin. And really, when you think about your conversion, did you not hear about God's righteousness and God's holiness? And did you not hear about your sin? Right? What was the point in someone bringing those messages to you? The point was to set you up to receive grace. Do you hear that? you got to know of God's holiness. you got to know of God's sin. Because God's going to cut you off from him permanently if you aren't somehow rectified and made holy. You need to be consecrated unto him. Well, how then can that happen? And that's where the message of grace comes in. That is something that Christians are called to do in this world. We are to prepare people to receive the grace from God. But in order to do that, we must teach them about holiness and we must teach them about sin. It's not a coincidence that sin spreads to us from Adam, is it? The nature of sin. How did sin enter the world? Through one man. How did death enter the world? Through one man. It spread to all of us so that all have sinned. You were born with a sin nature, and that yeast that Adam got when he fell, it spread to all of humanity. That is the nature of sin. Holiness is not granted to us, though, just by merely coming into contact with Jesus or through those who associate with Jesus or coming into contact with his sanctified people. The sin of Adam spread to all humanity except for Christ, who had no earthly father. And that's how the yeast of sin works. But Christ, living a perfect life, dying on the cross and rising again, that does not in itself make everyone holy. 
Holiness is not transmitted the same way that sin is. Sin comes naturally. Holiness comes through repentance and faith in Christ's saving work. So not everyone is saved just because Christ died and rose again, or they know the gospel story. Just coming into contact with things about Christ, you must come to Christ and ask him for cleansing and holiness as you turn from your sin and believe that he died. Now, the next and final point I'm about to make is that just this, all right? But it's not going to seem like it, but it is what I'm about to say, okay? When God exposes the sinner, he does so to prepare them for grace. When God exposes the sinner and teaches them about holiness and sin, he does so to prepare them for grace. Verse 14 says this, Then Haggai replied, So is this people. So is this people. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offered there is defiled. Now what God is actually doing is preparing the people for grace by pointing out just how bad they are off without his grace. That's what he's saying. This won't become apparent until the next time I preach through Haggai, but this is what God is actually doing in the larger context. So these two questions have been answered, okay? And the Lord declares it through Haggai, and people now understand it, all right? That holiness is not contagious, sin is. But now notice that God uses some peculiar phrases. He doesn't say, my people, my nation. He says, this people and this nation. These are phrases that are meant to show contempt because they had formerly abandoned God. And so they're phrases meant to show disgust and uh, God's kind of distancing himself from them in the past because of what they had done. And they were not holy because they had a temple foundation. They were not holy because they had an altar. And they were not holy because they had done some sacrifices. What was the problem? Based on the beginning of Haggai, they had not resumed building of the temple, the rebuilding of it. And they had been ignoring God for all these 16 years. And so maybe once in a while they participated in a sacrifice. That didn't make them holy, doing a holy ritual. They had to present themselves fully to God in full obedience, observing all that God had commanded them to do in the law and the prophets. They were in covenant with God, right? In covenant with God. And God required pure 100% obedience. And they were not doing that. Thus, they were defiled. They were defiled. And they could touch a holy altar. And it further meant that the altar was now defiled. And they could bring a sacrifice, but because they were impure before God for not building the temple, they would now corrupt their sacrifices. Everything that they did just became corrupt because they had not fully devoted themselves to the Lord in obedience. Okay? Their sin affected everything that they offered to God and everything that they did. And that's why there was a drought. And that's why there was a harvest. And that's why there was no bounty. And that's why they were broke. They had violated the covenant that God made with them. And this is the Lord's declaration to them. And this is how he teaches them about holiness and sin so that they can see their condition, so that they would ultimately see that this blessing that they are about to get is from God. The punishment was from God, so was the blessing. They are now and have been for several months been rebuilding the temple. And so the Lord is going to say in the next passage of Scripture, from this day forward, things will be a lot better because you've come back to me. From this day forward. So that's why he's letting them know through this passage, this is how you were, this people, this nation, this is what you were. Everything that you touched was defiled. Not anymore. He's preparing them for grace and what he's about to tell them. Okay? So, Christian, let me say this. While we don't want to obsess over our past sins, we definitely don't want to forget the life that the Lord saved us from. We all come from very simple backgrounds. All of us. Because we were all conceived in sin. And at one point in our lives, everything we did was sinful. And everything that we touched, we corrupted because we were dead in our sins. In our deadness before God, all that we did was sinful. We tainted everything. That's how sin is. And we needed to be cleansed and sanctified by Christ if we were to do good deeds before him. But thank God. Thank God someone came and told us about our need for holiness and how we couldn't achieve it by coming to church or by carrying a Bible, or by being related to a Christian, or by giving to the church, that holiness is not contagious like that. Thank God someone came and told us that we were sinners through and through, and that anything not done in faith or for the glory of God is sin. Anything not done in faith or for the glory of God is sin. We needed a renewed heart, and that is only done 
by the power of God the Spirit as the gospel is brought to us and as the Spirit changes our hearts so that we can turn to Christ in repentance, away from rebellion, away from not caring about God's uh, projects in this world, God's desires, just like Israel was not concerned about God's program there. Many people come to Christ, and when they turn from their sin, and they begin to do what God calls them to do. That's repentance, okay? It doesn't mean perfection, but repentance. And through that repentance, right, God acknowledges that they are no longer rebellious towards him. And through faith in Christ, our sins are wiped away, Christ's righteousness is given to us, and God declares us righteous. That is how holiness is transmitted, and that is how grace comes to us. And the Lord says, you used to be on your way to hell, not some more. From this day forward, there is, there is blessing in Christ, okay? And God calls us to live for him. Brothers and sisters, someone came and told us. Someone came and told us. We are sending someone to go and tell. We are giving next week so that others can go and tell as we support other missionaries, not just one from our church. Someone like Haggai, someone like Malachi, God sent messengers to warn people of sin and to declare righteousness in order that they might receive God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we exist to tell people about Christ. And it is time for more of us to be involved in that. We exist to help spread the gospel. Not just once a year when it's time for the Lottie Moon offering or when it's time for Operation Christmas Child. Taking Christ to others is something that we ought to do regularly. This time next year, all right, or uh, I'm sorry, well, this time next year, we're going to push for more people to go on mission trips, all right, so that we can involve you in sharing, helping share the gospel to the nations. But this coming next year, I want to and our elders want to help our church get to a regular level of outreach and evangelism. Let me say that again. This next year, we want to help take our church to the next level of outreach and evangelism. I don't have all the pieces placed together yet, but I'm working on it. All right? It's time for us to take the things that we are learning in the 11 Bible studies that we have at our church. Did you know that that's how many small groups and Bible studies and teaching times that we have going on throughout the church? It is time to take those 11 different meetings and put it to use. Okay? What good is it for us to know God if we don't take him to others? What good is it to know about God if we don't ever talk to him with lost people? It's too easy for Christians to hide behind Bible studies, small groups and sermons, and never do anything with what God tells us to do. There are people who need to be saved because they are in their sinful, unholy condition, and they will perish in hell under God's wrath for all eternity. Do you understand that that is why we have God's word? This is one reason why we have God's word, okay? Had Adam and Eve not sinned, we would not need God's written word because God would be talking to us directly. Just like it will be in the new creation, okay? God will be walking with us in this world. And we would have no need for God's word on paper because he'd be communing with us. But ever since sin came into the world, we are all separated from God due to our unclean condition. And God's word ever since has had to come to us through mediators, through prophets, through other people, okay? Since we are all separated from him. This mediated word that we have on paper is there to tell us of our sin. It is there to tell us of God's holiness. It is there to teach us how do we are to be reconciled to God so that so that we can be transformed into people who love God and who love others perfectly. Do you understand that? That the word of God is not an end unto itself. It is there to tell you of your sin, my sin, God's holiness, how we can be saved through Christ and redeemed and rescued and transformed into perfect image bearers, people who are just like Jesus, who love God perfectly and who love others perfectly. It is, Bible study is not meant to be an end to itself. It is meant to be 
transformative so that you love God and love others. And one of the ways that you love others is by telling them about Jesus Christ. So if you're just a a theology hog and you do nothing with it, we got to help you change. We got to help you put feet to what what you're learning. We need to mobilize better. We need to be on mission better. That mission starts with learning, but all the equipping has to be lived out and done. We have to be a mobilizing church. And one of the dangers of Reformed churches like ours is that we teach so well that we get caught up in the teaching and we forget that we got, we, we're being taught to go and do something. We're taught so that we can take over the kingdom of Satan with the kingdom of Christ. Okay, This is why the first and the greatest commandment are what? To love who? God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love who else? Your neighbor as yourself. On all these two hang the law and prophets. All of scripture is pointing to that great moment when we will forever love God and each other in the new creation perfectly and is designed to help us do this now. Okay, now. And I fear that we may become a church that is so bent on studying God's word that we don't do much with it when it comes to reaching the lost and helping sinners to be reconciled to God. It must lead to transportation lest we become stagnant due to a lack of mobilization. And Leaders have to take responsibility for that. Think about it. In, within a couple-week period, there will be 11 Bible studies, 20-something hours of meeting devoted to knowing God's Word. How many hours do you think we're putting in when it comes to evangelizing and corporately reaching people? Nowhere near that. I have to own that as a leader, so I'm saying that to our shame. We exist to reach people. And so this next year, we're going to try to mobilize. And I'm asking for your help, brothers and sisters. Ending this year and starting next year, okay, we are going to be pushing for your help in reaching people with Christ. We want to do this together. It is our privilege. You can start by inviting someone to our Christmas service here in two weeks to hear the gospel, okay? We made little invitations for you. If you don't know, they're in the back. All it says is you're invited to joy to the world, a Christmas morning worship service, and it has our address and time, 10 o'clock. Granted, I put the wrong zip code, and Sperry is not 92395, but they'll still get here, okay? <laughs> Give an invitation to somebody. I'll be sharing the gospel on Christmas morning. We can do that together. Go grab a couple. There's a stack of 200 of these out there. If even 10% of us brought somebody to church, there'd be 10 or 12 people here, 15 people here, that would hear the gospel that had never heard it before. This is something we can do together, okay? You can start by inviting someone to that. In January, I'm going to be offering guitar classes to help form new friendships with those who need Christ. I'm going to be offering music lessons, guitar lessons. Two classes will be offered. I want to equip our church people to help lead in worship in various areas of the church, but I also want to bring unbelievers here to teach the music so that we can make new friends and we can have gospel conversations with these people eventually. So would you mind thinking about someone to invite to that class? I made a flyer for this, a little invitation, a handout that you, if you know of someone who wants to take music lessons, you know, Brother John and I were talking this week about some of this stuff, and he mentioned something someone said to him, that if our church disappeared as a people, would the community recognize it, that we were gone? Do you know how hard that is to hear? Would our community recognize that we were gone because we pulled away every way that we served from them? This next year, we want to up that game, all right? Take it up a notch. We want to start by offering guitar lessons. I think it would be great if we saw people converted because we offered something like that. We can get creative in how we reach people, okay? You don't have to have Christian rock stars come here and, you know, Christian athletes. It's, it's us reaching people, talking to our friends and family. I think it would be great if eventually we offered piano and keyboard and drums and other kinds of instruments to bring the community to where we are, we can go to them, but we, can, we have a place where we can use to do that and to love them and to offer minimal charge to teach them music. It would be great if we offered after-school programs. I used to do this down in L.A. when I was a youth pastor there. Offer after-school tutoring a couple days a week, and we would see 15, 20 kids come from Venice High School, and we'd have snacks and drinks for them, and we'd teach them how to memorize things better, help them with their homework. And these kids started coming to our youth group, and they started getting saved. And it was transformational. They were being noticed. uh, They were being told that God wanted to save them through the death and resurrection of Christ. Next year's mission trips. 
There are so many different things that we can be doing that we want to up this game as far as when it comes to um, sharing the gospel. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are big long-term plans, but I want you to be praying about how we can take holiness and sin to people so that they can receive the grace of God, okay? Now, there's something else that we need to be doing better, and I pray that you will help me with evangelism next year and our, and our elders as we equip you and provide opportunities. But God's word is there to transform us to look like Christ, to bring grace that helps us to love God and to love others as well. One of the other ways that we need to grow in our loving is love for each other. Love for each other. Because we need to bond together, fellowship together, commune together, work together. And we can't be isolated Christians anymore, only sticking with the one or two people that we're comfortable with. We have to form friendships and relationships in this church to help each other do the work that God has called us to do. Now, when you came to Sovereign Way Christian Church as a member, you covenanted to care for each other. And every time we accept new members in, you covenant to do the same thing. We are a family, and that requires connection, not just Bible study. I will not, I will not diminish the studying of God's word. But if your aim is to come and only learn and never connect with others heart to heart, something is wrong. Something is wrong. How can you neglect the people for whom Christ died and say you love Christ? Scripture tells us that very plainly. We are a body, which means we're supposed to minister to other parts of the body, if we use that analogy, to serve each other and to know each other and to pray for each other and to carry each other's burdens. And how can that happen if we only show up and learn and leave? How can that happen if your heads are only buried in the word and you never take the time to get to know the person across from you? How can that happen? And many people here, let me tell you, many people here long for connection. And it is a complaint that I hear regularly. I just don't feel connected in the church. That could be due to your own issues or it could be due to the the culture at large. If you don't take opportunities to get connected when the opportunities present themselves, or if you don't put yourself out there in, in contributing to creating connection, it could be your fault. Or if you do try that and nobody wants to receive you back and be connected to you, well, then there's a bigger issue there. Okay, It could be the culture of the church. But it's not okay to use your bashfulness or personality quirks to remain in the shadows of membership. It's not okay to neglect brothers and sisters if you were missing from our church, if you were missing from our church, would it affect how things are around here? Just like if our church were gone, would, we, would the community miss us? Would our church miss you if you were gone? If not, then that means you really have to learn to connect better with people and step it up a notch, okay? If I may, I want to invite you to connect better, and we're going to help with this next year too. I feel like I'm giving long announcements, okay? But it's time that we do some application instead of just hoarding knowledge in every little fact about God's word that we do nothing with it. I'm going to be bent on helping mobilize our people this next year, okay? I, 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 I woke up many times in my sleep last night, like ferocious, God, get it in them. Help us to do something with this. And I'm like, am I getting angry in my dreams? I don't know what's going on. I'm like, Lord, give me love, right? Help me communicate this. But this next year, I want you connected better with other people in our church. So we're going to create dinners every quarter where you have the opportunity to host people in your home and you have the other of you have the opportunity to go into people's home and have dinner. And what we're going to do is we're going to have sign-up sheets. X amount of people are going to sign up and we're going to all travel to someone's house to have a, an appetizer. And after a little time there, we're going to get up and leave. And then we're going to go to someone else's house and have a salad. And then we're going to spend some time there. And then we're going to go to another house and we're going to have dinner. And then we're going to end up at another house and have dessert. And then we're going to wind it back here on a Sunday evening for Sunday night worship. We're going to do this four times next year. And so I would like several different families, and I've already had people volunteer, volunteer to host a portion of those meals. And then if too many people sign up, wonderful, great. Then we have to get more volunteers to host. But in the meantime, we'll have a limit on that, and you'll be able to go into each other's homes, and you'll get to practice hospitality. My wife and I, we counted the other day, and I know we fell short. Over the time that we've been at Sovereign Way Church, we've had over 200 people in our home for dinner or for fellowship and to spend time with them. And I don't just mean for Bible study. And 
because our church has shape-shifted over the years. Some of these people are no longer with us, and more people are being added. And I'm like, man, there's more people on the list. How are we going to get all these people over? So sometimes we have massive gatherings, but it is our habit to do this. And I don't want to be the one, only one waving this flag of fellowship and connection. We got to grow in that and care for each other and help each other so that we do the mission that God has called us to and so that we love God the way that he has called us to. I am a better Christian because of the connections that I have made with you. But your duty is not just to be connected to your pastor. Your duty is to be connected to each other. And you will receive so much blessing and connection if you would but connect with more, why, uh, other people more. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in them. He has gifted them to serve you and to minister to you. And you will not attain maturity in Christ apart from connecting properly in this church. We need to grow in healthiness. I know it seems like none of this is mentioned in Scripture. But the whole point of Haggai is to show people their holiness, show people their sin, so that they can see that God has restored them. And that restoration is to lead to something. When we come to the New Testament, we see that God has shown us our sin, shown us his holiness, shown us how grace comes in to save us and transform us into being people of action, not just people of knowledge. And so would you pray with me? Would you get involved with me and what our elders are doing and what we're trying to pass on? We're trying to get the gospel out more. We're trying to build stronger relationships. We got tons of Bible studies. It's just time to put some Bible feedies, all right, to the Bible studies and do some action. God created us for good works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one should boast. And then it goes on to tell us that the works that God created, he created for us that we should walk in them. He created us for good works, and that is why he has saved us. Did you ever piece together Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10? You were saved unto good works. That's what you were rescued from, and that's what we see here in Haggai, that God saved these people to rebuild his temple, to rebuild his temple. And brothers and sisters, you were saved to build God's holy temple, which is the church. We are that temple now. How dare we neglect God's temple in building it while we build our homes, while we build our lives, while we build our security in the future, while God's church lies in ruins. And that is the message that God brings to Israel. He brings to that message now. And it's something that we always need to hear lest we fall into complacency. Would you pray with me? Brothers and sisters, let's go before God. Heavenly Father, may we be transformed to be like you. Change us, Lord. Do not let us be complacent. Father, we love you. We thank you for the grace given to us. We pray that, God, you would help us to reach people with the gospel of Christ. We love you. We thank you for Jesus who cleanses us, who gave us his holiness that we might be proclaimed right before you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.